0: All right, well, I, I want to begin this morning by giving you a quiz. Um, I'm going to give you a date in history, and then I want you to see if you can tell me what happened on that date. Some of these are easy. Some of them I would be impressed if any of you get it right. So let's start with a softball. You ready? September 11th, 2001, right. Twin Towers Right. crashed, brought the United States to a war with terrorists. All right. Here's a little more difficult. November ninth, nineteen eighty nine. November ninth, nineteen eighty nine. We can elicit guesses. That's okay. Hey, what you got, Jeff? No, no, not Panama. No, no, no. 19, 1989. Not Challenger. No. Berlin Wall. Who said that? Paul? You said that? Oh, way back there. Rich. Um, Berlin Wall came down. Um, United East and West Germany, symbolizing really the defeat of communism. Uh, How about this one? A little easier. December 7th, 1941. Pearl Pearl Harbor. We know that one, right? Brought United States into World War II. All right, here's a hard one. December 17th, 1903. Huh? Kitty Hawk, who said that? Yeah, Lance, good. Kitty Hawk, first powered airplane ride. Paved the way for air travel in the future. In fact, just even, whatever, 40 years later, World War II, air travel, a lot. All right, here's a, here's a very difficult one. I'd be impressed. May 10th, 1869. No? Good guess. May 10th, 1869. Anyone have an idea on that? Uh, this is right, right? Because I need to, you know, a good test is one where nobody scores perfect, but, you know, there some people score 90%, so. No, Lincoln Assassin would have been good, but that wasn't. This was 19, 1869. Yeah, the what? Transcontinental Railroad. Are you on your iPod or something? <laughs> <You got it? laughs> All right. right. That's good. That's good. East and West were linked, which meant that to travel from East to West didn't take months over a hard journey up and down. It took days in a sleeper car. Changed the face of our nation. All right. Another softball. July 4th, 1776. Declaration of Independence. All right. October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther, the Theses in the Door of Wittenberg, Castle Church of Wittenberg. Okay, October 12th, 1492. Columbus, Columbus, good, all right. June 10th, 1215. Magna Carta, Carta. good, Tom, Tom. All right, this is my last one. I don't have a date exactly for this, but sometime in late May, 337 A.D. 337 A.D. Close to Roman Empire, something to do that? I heard something? I think someone said it? Constantine was baptized shortly before his death, which really was uh, an indication that Christianity had conquered. The Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire just around that time, Constantine. Well, each of these events had a profound impact upon the world and upon world history as we know it. But today, we're going to look at an historic event that I would argue had a greater impact than all of these events. In fact, I would argue that the event we're going to look at today had more of an impact than all of these events combined. I'm talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It well can be argued that the crucifixion of Jesus is the, the pinnacle of history. Which everything led up to that and everything then looks back to that. Our world knows about it, right? When we say our dates and our times... We say BC, which stands for before Christ, and AD, which stands for Anno Domini, right? In the year of our Lord. Right, where does it hinge? It hinges in the life of Jesus. Some try to take Christ out of that by calling it BCE, before common era, and CE, common era. But, but before the common era, was before Jesus. And the common era was after Jesus. So still you've got Jesus, whether... You're going to name Him or not. It's what the Bible tells us. Everything in the Old Testament anticipates Jesus. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have life. But it is those Old Testament Scriptures he said, that speak of Me. And on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, Jesus explained to the disciples all the things pertaining to Himself. Everything in the New Testament explains Jesus. The Gospels tell the account of His life. And the epistles interpret His life for us. Mark Dever wrote two books. One was an Old Testament survey. One was a New Testament survey. For those of you who know, what was the Old Testament survey called? Promises made. Promise made. What's the New Testament survey called? Promises Kept. Just a real simple way. Outline your whole Bible. That we promises made about Christ, promises kept, explaining how the promises of Christ were kept. And it can be argued the crucifixion, and I'll show you a bit later, where the crucifixion is really where it all all turned. And I just say, what a privilege we have of standing on holy ground this morning and looking at the crucifixion of Jesus, where we've placed our hope. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're again going to take a big chunk of Scripture. I'm struggling with that, just so you know. It's not, these messages have not come easy because there's so much. Um, after Mark, I think we'll settle down to a pace I'm more comfortable with. But we're, we're pressing on in this, trying to get through the Gospel quickly. We're going to finish next week with His burial and resurrection. Mark 15, verse 22. And then they brought Him to the place Golgotha which is translated, place of a skull. They tried to give Him wine mixed with myrrh, but He did not take it. And they crucified Him and divided up His garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified Him. The inscription of the charge against Him read, The King of the Jews... They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking Him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with Him were also insulting Him. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and a, filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Taking the title of my message this morning right from that very last phrase of this Gentile Roman centurion. Who saw Jesus, he saw Jesus crucified, he saw Jesus mocked, he saw how Jesus was abandoned by his Father, and he came to the conclusion, truly this was the Son of God. My prayer, my hope for you all this morning is you might come away saying the same thing, truly this man is the Son of God. It's my aim this morning. My outline is really simple. I'm just going to trace through just major events of of what took place, trying to categorize everything that took place as crucifixion. First point, he was crucified. Verses 22 through 26. Now, it's obvious. The account is very simple and straightforward and much is told here in these few verses about the circumstances surrounding the crucifixion. First, we're told where he was crucified. They brought him, verse 22, to the place Golgotha, which is translated... The place of a skull. It's a well known place in the days of Jesus, simply known for its name, the skull. Um, it's where we get the name Calvary. Calvary is the Latin translation for the word skull. Now we don't know today where this place was. We know from John nineteen, verse twenty that it was near the city. We know from Hebrews thirteen, twelve, that it was outside the gates. But there's ongoing debates about archaeologists about where exactly it is. I have my thoughts, but I'm not sure. Um, But it it was a well-known place in the days of Jesus. It was the well-known place. That's where the Romans crucified their criminals at Golgotha. In that place, there were probably some permanent vertical poles that were set up to be able to nail people, to cross beams, to put them up on those poles to crucify them. When Jesus was walking with his beam along the road to Via Della Rosa, or when he was too weak to carry it, and Simon was carrying it for him. Uh, Everyone knew where they were going. Uh, They didn't have to lead Jesus. They didn't have to follow Jesus. They they could have gone right there, because everyone knew what was taking place. They're going to where all criminals were executed, Golgotha. It's where? Verse 23 tells us a drink that Jesus offered and refused. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is the first order of business for all who are crucified. They were given wine to drink, kind of an analgesic uh, to lessen the pain. In fact, I remember going to California one time on one of our vacations, and we did the Gold Rush theme one year. We went around the different places, Sutter's Mill, where Gold was first discovered in 1848, Sutter's Fort, and we went to this town called Columbia, which is basically kind of, it's not like a ghost town, it's a, it's a town, a little bit like Midway Village maybe, just tried to restore, kind of about how it was uh, back in the days, uh, but the, the saloons, house restaurants, you can go in, and some places you just have windows on them, and you kind of look in. I, I remember um, being intrigued by one place, it was the dentist's office, and, uh, it was all, it was all glass on the outside, and they had some chairs there, the pretty rudimentary chairs you'd sit in if you had a dental problem. And, uh, they had some tools that the dentist would use, kind of sitting right there towards the window. And I remember these tools, right? Dennis, when they use tools, they use these nice, nice sharp, finely things that we don't have, or these nice mirrors, and, and they take them out of the, um, uh, whatever the, Sterilized containers so we can see them. And, and these were more like my toolkit. I mean, these were like, uh, pliers of different kinds and, and round and straight things. Maybe some poked. I got a poker, an ice poker in my toolkit. I got some screwdrivers. That's about like what it was. And so think about dentistry. 150 years ago, no Novocaine, dental hygiene, no fluorine in the water. Dental hygiene wasn't what was, is today. Tooth decay often. And you know who the des- best dentists were, right? Who were the best dentists in those days? Well, barbers maybe, but those who could take it out quick. Whoever got it out fast, that was your best dentist. Well, um, how'd they dull the pain? Some hard liquor, some whiskey is how how they did it. Get the patient drunk, right? So they're they're inebriated. They don't even care. They don't know what's going on. And furthermore, they don't remember the next day. And that's how they did it. Well, similarly here, I think that's what was taking place here at the cross. This drink, this wine that was mixed with myrrh, trying to give Him something. Proverbs 31 verse 6 instructs us to give strong drink to Him who is perishing. Just to help with the pain. Well, of course, when Jesus realized what this was, it says in verse 23 that He did not take it. And there's a reason He didn't take it, It's because Jesus wanted to go through the full Suffering of the cross. He didn't want the pain lessened in any way. His cup was to endure the full brunt of the wrath of God. Now, I'm sure the two robbers willingly took it, who were going to be crucified with him. They wanted to do anything to decrease the pain. Jesus himself was unwilling to drink. Well, in verse 24, we find out what the soldiers were doing when Jesus was on the cross. They crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Any occupation comes with its privileges. A physician can write prescriptions for sick family members. A carpenter can build an addition onto his house by himself. A pilot maybe can get discounts with the airlines. And one of the perks of being a soldier responsible for crucifixions is that you can get the clothes of those who are being crucified. Obviously, Jesus, being crucified, didn't need His clothes anymore. He wore just a little bit, maybe on the cross, but His outer robe were all free game. And so what they did, they casted lots, rolled dice, picked straws, something like that. And the winner received his garments, all in fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. They divide my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots. It's all according to God's plan. Everything surrounding the crucifixion. Well, verse 25, we find out when Jesus was crucified. It's the third hour when they crucified Him. The Jews began their clock at sunup and so three hours puts you about nine o'clock. Jesus had been up all night praying, arrested somewhere in the night hours, early morning hours, taken off to various trials. The cock crowed and Jesus then still with Pilate and still uh, ordered them to be flogged early in the morning. Went out, got flogged. By the time he reached Calvary, Golgotha, it was nine o'clock in the morning, the third hour of the day. We read in verse 26, the official charge against Jesus. He was king of the Jews. When you read John's account of this, you see that the conversation between Jesus and Pilate is all about kings. Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say correctly, I'm a king. But Jesus did clarify. He said, my kingdom's not of this world. So it's a different king. And Pilate, I think, knew that. But because of pressure of people, he, he still, that's a good charge to put. That's exactly what he claimed to be. He claimed to be king. And, and claiming to be king um, kind of irked the Jews, which I think Pilate liked. Um, they even asked him to change the wording. No, change it. Say, this man says he's the king of the Jews. He says, no, what I've written, I have written. Because the king of the Jews is another name for Messiah. Psalm 2 makes that clear. The anointed one is the king that the Lord installs upon Zion. Well, those are the events that took place at crucifixion. Where he was crucified, how he refused to drink the wine, what happened to his garments, when he was crucified, the charge against him, all this, all this detail. And yet, do you find something kind of Interesting. Very little is said about the actual crucifixion itself. It's mentioned twice, verse 24, and they crucified him. It's mentioned also in verse 25, when they crucified him. Nothing of the details. You have to say, why, why is that? This, this supreme event, why so little of the details? Why, why is so little told about the pain and agony of the cross? Why does Mark not speak so much about the suffering that Jesus would incur upon the cross? Why doesn't he describe the pain of a a nail in the hand or a nail in your legs or in the feet? Why doesn't he explain explain the, the pain of cramps that dehydration might cause? Well, I think Mark didn't write that much because people were familiar with crucifixion. They knew everything about what crucifixion was. They're very, very familiar with it. I mean, they, and whenever they went out of town, whenever they went out of the gates, it was right there out, outside the gate. They could see the people being crucified. And I suspect that most people had seen a crucifixion or two in their lifetime. Some, maybe 10, 20, 40, 50, hundreds of crucifixions some had seen. Common, common way. The, and uh, the Jews knew all about how the Romans put people to death. Now, exact practices varied from region to region. We don't know exactly what took place of how Jesus was crucified there in Jerusalem. Um, and the Persians who invented crucifixion several hundred years before Christ, uh, you get the sense that they just impaled people to a tree or, or hung them up someplace, maybe just a, a single post. Uh, the Romans at times used a big X, which just spread everyone out. Like that, as they hung to die. Some had just a... Uh, maybe you think about a capital T. Just a stake. And then they hang somebody above the stake. You know, so the, t- the, the cross beam comes above the stake. And Jesus, obviously, was like a small T. He was probably down a little bit because there was room in the stake for, for the name to be right above Him. But that process was familiar to the readers of Mark. He didn't need to expand upon it. For us, it's a little bit different. We don't see crucifixions... We don't know much about crucifixions. Maybe you've read about it. But here's the key to understand a crucifixion is the Romans designed the crucifixion to produce a slow death, maximizing pain and suffering. The idea wasn't to do it quickly, like the guillotine did it quickly. The idea wasn't to do it painlessly, like lethal injection, for all we, the best we can tell. It's painless. You get paralyzed first, and then you have the drugs which... Uh, put you to sleep and kill you. No, this was totally different. This was strange and unusual punishment. In fact, it was designed that way. None of the crucial organs were damaged in the process of crucifixion. All the bodily functions carried on as normal. Circulation, breathing, respiratory. But eventually the victims would die from lack of energy. They just had no more energy to be able to lift themselves up to breathe. I remember being at a friend's house in California. This is before Vaughn and I were married, though I think, I'm not sure she remembers this, but we happened upon some large beetles. Do you remember this? <laughs> happened upon some large beetles. And, and I wasn't a native of California, but there were some guys who were from California, and what they liked to do is tie some thread around these beetles. These beetles were about the size of maybe a quarter or so, maybe half dollar, and, and they got some thread and tied them around their necks. And uh, these were flying beetles. And so as you had your thread, these beetles would go <timing noise> until they reached the end of the line and it would be taut and then they'd come back again. You'd go like that. And uh, so I thought this was great fun. And I'd never done this before. Here's some other guys' had. So we had our pet beetles that we had on our strings. And we, I guess we would have maybe half a dozen of them or so. And it was great fun. It's kind of we walked around the yard and these things. <speaks> and that, that was great fun for about an hour. And after about an hour, all of the beetles weren't flying so much. I think they were exhausted. And so we'd would, would sit them down there on the table or on the ground or whatever, and they, they weren't moving much. In fact, they weren't moving at all. We killed them because they exerted so much energy. They died of exhaustion, I am sure. They died because their energy was spent, it was all gone. I think that's a bit like crucifixion is that the, the energy that it takes as you are, are drained of energy and you're trying to lift up with no nourishment out there in the hot sun. You're probably being dehydrated. Your muscles are cramping. You're dying slowly. So I often say, crucifixion is like drowning slowly. About time you think you're, you're drowning and you're passing away, then you, your body convulses and you get another breath to carry you on for another minute or so. And then you think you're going to drown and die again because that's basically what it is. No oxygen. <laughs> About that time your body jerks and you, you can breathe again. And so right at the end, it's like drowning slowly. And through the scourging body, blood would be lost. Carrying the cross, energy would be lost. But the victim slowly worn down. Eventually expired. Also, it's a painful deal. It's not just, hey, let's, let's wait till your energy has gone. Let's go run a marathon until your energy has gone. It's not like that. No, it's painful. Five to seven inch spikes nailed into your hands or wrists. Maybe into the hands that tied up the arms. Maybe into the wrists so that you can support yourself. Feet nailed um, to the cross. Um, Oftentimes we think about feet being nailed right through the front, through both of them. Perhaps. In 1968, archaeologists discovered portions of a skeleton that had been crucified and its legs were kind of sideways and uh, still had the nail through the heel bone. Just kind of maybe that was how Jesus crucified. We don't we don't exactly know. But Jesus felt the pain of hanging on spikes for hours. You ever attempted to lift a, a heavy metal object, maybe with a wrench a on the bottom, and, and you're maybe moving some appliance or something like that, and you're picking it up and you're moving it, and then you oh you gotta put it down, and you kind of your fingers have been cut into. You know that feeling? You gotta put it down for a rest. That's similar to what was taking place, the crucifixion. All I can say about the pain of the crucifixion is it was excruciating. What a great word. It was excruciating. Ex, out of, crucis, the cross. Excruciating. That, that probably is the, the word that we use in the English language to describe the worst pain imaginable. Excruciating pain. It means pain out of the cross comes likely, uh, appropriately, and Jesus experienced a full amount of pain, didn't take the mercy of diluting his pain with wine mixed with myrrh. He didn't have the mercy of having his legs broken. That's a mercy, by the way. Later Jesus died, they came and they wanted to have everyone dead before sundown, and so they broke the legs of the two robbers, and then they would die quickly. Without your legs, you can't, you can't lift up to breathe, you'd drown. Essentially, no oxygen. But Jesus didn't have His legs broken. He bore all of our punishment. And here's the good news. He Himself bore in our body the sins. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. That's how First Peter 2 says it. He bore the sins that we deserved. Praise the Lord. He was crucified. Well, He was also mocked. And this is, by the way, this is, this is pretty important. Uh, I remember in the early days of Kishwaukee Bible Church, our sending church, it was a Palm Sunday, um, just like today. And my father's a physician and I asked him to give, a, give us a, a picture of what took place, the medical reason, the biological, physiological deals with the sufferings of Christ. And he showed pictures with anatomical diagrams, how the body is impacted by crucifixion he described the physiological sufferings that Christ experienced and and i remember sitting there ask, asking having asked him to do that and it it came on me crystal clear hebrews 12:2 popped in my mind we are to fix our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame sat down at the right hand of God. I would have expected to see despising the pain, but reality is that many people were crucified during the days of Jesus. It's just a way of death. But there was something else there, despising the, the shame that came with it. And I, I think as terrible as the physical sufferings were, I came to the realization that the Bible speaks a lot about the shame that was hurled at Jesus being the most detestable part of the crucifixion being up before everybody naked, enduring the pain of the cross and the shame of the cross. Because there's more than the physical suffering that Jesus bared. bore. He, he was mocked by many. In fact, Psalm 22, verse 7, which I've already quoted once, I'll quote again, says, "...all who see Me sneer at Me, they separate the lift, they wag the head." Such was the shame of the cross. They're seeing Jesus and they're just, they're just mouthing off to Him. Right? Maybe you've seen a little yippy dog. And, yip, 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 yip. They're real brave when they have the leash and they know that they can't actually engage in combat. Right? But take that leash away and they're not quite as brave. Right? And someone, if they're up there upon the cross, they know Jesus can't come down. Incredibly brave can mock them. And, and I just say, never underestimate how difficult it was for Christ to receive this abuse. We'll see from all ways of where He received the, the shame. We have saying, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's a nice saying, but it's not true. Laura Bush, when she uh, was asked about what was the hardest thing about being First Lady, she said this, the hardest thing about being First Lady was seeing my husband criticized unjustly. Not the, not the work, not the long hours, not the pressure, not the difficult decisions. Unjust criticism was the most difficult thing. Words hurt, and what was railed upon Christ was hurtful as well. And especially even, we'll see, what God did or what God didn't do was especially hurtful. But look at this. Even He was numbered with the transgressors, 27 and 28. They crucified two robbers with Him, one on His right and one on His left. And the Scripture was fulfilled which says "And He was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says that very thing. He was numbered with transgressors. Right? When you think about Jesus... You just lot him in with the transgressors is right where he was. He, he was with sinners. Um, he's called a friend of sinners, mockingly. Jesus was okay with that. He was preaching the gospel to them. But right here at this point, Jesus was crucified with sinners, with robbers. He was assumed to be a criminal himself, although he himself committed no sin. Would have caused many to think about Jesus in a way that none of us think about Jesus. When we think about Jesus today, we think about His righteousness. We think about His holiness. We think about His goodness. I mean, even secularists today will look at Jesus. say He was a good man. But, the many who saw Him hanging upon the cross would have thought Him a great sinner. Bringing shame to Jesus. Their thoughts come out in verse 29. Those passing by were hurling abuse at Him wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross! By the way, you see people passing by. It was a common occurrence. And people passed by and watched crucifixions. It was a public place. Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Romans 3.25 The result was as many people saw Him, they recognized Him. And when they recognized Him, they said, Oh, This is the same guy! Ha! <laughs> ha! Yeah, yeah, let's see how true your words are now, Jesus. They would have laughed at him. Even that word there, ha, just a, a word of derision. These words aren't genuine entreaty. They, they aren't saying, ha. Right. You're going to destroy the temple. Go ahead and do it. We want to see that. Now, these are words of of mocking, abusive words, even as it says here, they were hurling abuse at him they were blaspheming him. Jesus was the object of blasphemy at this moment. They wanted to show how foolish he was. He claimed to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Where to get him? It got him crucified. But beyond the people, even the religious leaders got in the action as well. Verse 31, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. It almost seems as they weren't really even talking to Jesus as much as they were talking to the people. And they were using Jesus as some ultimate object lesson. And they're saying, okay, listen, people, he saved others, but at this moment he cannot save himself. Look at him, he's perishing upon the cross. He's not a savior, he's not to be trusted in them. Look, it says he's the king of Israel, but he is no king. What king is crucified? the king crucified well certainly not well let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him if he is such a mighty savior he has every opportunity to show us who he claimed to be all I has to do is climb down from the cross and we'll believe him lot like people today who say well I'll believe in God if this happens they were mocking and saying exactly the same thing the, the psalmist, maybe these people said, Psalm 22, I quote it again, he trusts in God, let him deliver him if he takes pleasure in him. Let's see, let us wait. Let's see if God will rescue this man. He will give His angels charge concerning you. Let you strike your foot against a stone. Well, let's see how true that is. Jesus, come on. He's not to be trusted. And, and I think that mocking went on and on and on. Even the robbers got into the action. verse 32, those who were crucified with Him were also insulting Him. Now, we know from Luke's Gospel that one of these robbers confessed his sin before Jesus, requested mercy in His kingdom, re- requested his sin even after, just a few hours earlier, a few minutes earlier, hurling abuse at Him. And yet, before he repented, he joined right along with the others. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And, and these are the robbers. they they're basically saying, right, you're no better than we are. How, how do you claim to be innocent? You must be a criminal as well since the Romans put you to death. They don't put to death innocent people. You're a sham and a disgrace, Jesus. Now, if anybody you might think you'd have sympathy from, it would be from the robbers, but they were hurling abuse at him. You know, it's, it's one thing to be verbally abused from those on the ground, but someone who is experiencing the same thing as you are to be railed at is difficult. I mean, it's one thing for a a crowd to boo an athlete who fails to do something. But it's entirely different if your own teammate then chews you on out. That's not good. It's especially demeaning. And here's, I I think, though not in the text, I think that God, in some regard, was mocking him as well. Since the Old Testament pronounced a curse upon the crucified, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree... Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, and where does the curse come but from God Himself? That by the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, was on a tree, He received the curse of God. Jesus was mocked by all, by Pilate, who took his claim to be king at face value, by those who passed by, by the religious leaders, by the robbers, and even in a sense by God. While He was crucified, He was mocked. Thirdly, He was also abandoned. And here we come, the great reality of the cross of Christ, when God the Father forsook God the Son. Well, we read in verse 33, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. How this darkness came about, we, we really don't know. You know, maybe I haven't really thought about this yet, but Ray, can you just hit the lights for this point? How about we do that? Just to, just to kind of feel that the darkness fell across the land. All right. We'll just carry on like this about five minutes or so when I'm, when I'm done with my point. We don't, we don't know how this darkness came. We know Ray just flipped the lights, but maybe um, sudden cloud cover, dust storm, rainstorm. We don't know. It certainly wasn't an eclipse because Passover is always at the full moon. So it wasn't an eclipse. Maybe it was something supernatural. Maybe God just turned off the switch of the sun. Maybe God had some kind of cover of blankness. We don't, we don't know, but it was dark. And you say, why the darkness? It's really it's a, it's a sign of, of God's judgment. In fact, throughout the Bible, darkness is often a, a sign of God's judgment. One of the plagues was a plague of darkness. In the book of Revelation, a portion of the judgment is, is darkening the sun, moon, and the stars so they not give light for a third of them. The prophet Amos tells a very interesting thing. He says this, Make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. The sun goes down at noon, the earth darkest in broad daylight. That's exactly what took place the life of Christ. In fact, it's the sixth hour of the day is noon. And, and that's where we see it here. It's, it is the sixth hour, right when these things happen, right at noon, right according to Amos, the darkness fell right at noon. And Amos goes on to speak about the judgment that would take place after that. So I think that's the meaning of the darkness. The darkness is judgment that came. And for us, turning off the lights doesn't doesn't really mean anything per se, though it is different. I think it would have been different for these people when the darkness fell. Judgment was coming upon all who rejected the Messiah. They disowned the Holy and Righteous One in the presence of Pilate. Judgment was coming down who asked for a murderer to be granted in his place. Judgment was coming upon those who put to death the Prince of Life and crucified the Lord of Glory. Here was perfect love, pure light in Jesus. And they did the worst thing imaginable to Him. They put Him to the death, the worst possible death that they could imagine. But I think there's another judgment taking place here in the dark of night. God was judging Jesus. As well, it comes in verse 34. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani," which translated means, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" He said that with a loud voice. It might be more like this, "Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani." Loud enough, I think, for many to hear. His words are loaded with significance. Has caused theologians through the years to, to puzzle and scratch their heads and try to figure out how it is that Jesus was forsaken of His Father. How can God forsake God? 33 years of His life, Jesus had known intimacy with the Father. He came forth from the Father into the world. While in the world, Jesus said, I'm not alone because the Father is with Me. Jesus did the work that the Father had given Him to do. The intimacy came down even to the words that Jesus spoke. He said, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding me does His works. Jesus was one, and by the way, this is a tremendous encouragement for us. When Jesus lived a righteous and holy life, yes, He was divine and that enabled Him, but very much so in His humanness. He just trusted and depended upon God in daily communion and God was with Him, strengthening Him often. But now, at this point, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was apart from the Father for the very first time. He had known the presence of God every moment of his life until this very moment. Suddenly, the Father was gone. No longer did he experience his presence of the Heavenly Father. He was truly abandoned from God for the first time. And Jesus knew what abandonment was. He was abandoned by, by many people. Um the 10 lepers who were healed, only one came back to give thanks. Of the thousands that he fed, many rejected his teachings. You read about that in John chapter six. Many who heard him gladly left him. Many who cried, "Hosanna," when he entered the city, cried, "Crucify him later." Even there was Judas, one of his disciples, who abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. But never did Jesus ever vocalize His own agony even when those who left Him. When Jews betrayed Him, His words were compassion. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Peter betrayed Him, it was just a sympathetic look. But this moment, with God abandoning God, God the Father abandoning God the Son, it was, it was all different. He'd never experienced this before. And that's why He screamed out, My God! My God! Why have You forsaken Me? It wasn't because Jesus deserved to be forsaken. Of anybody on the planet, He was deserving not to be forsaken. But rather, it was so that we could be forgiven. Our sin must be punished. God can't just turn His face away and ignore sin. He's got to deal with it. His justice demands it. But the good news, He took the punishment for our sins that we deserved in the body of Jesus And the only way for God to punish His Son was to abandon Him first. By the way, my God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? comes from Psalm 22, verse 1. It's called the Crucifixion Psalm. I've quoted from it three or four times already this morning. There had to be this divine abandonment. So, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? There very well could have been a voice from heaven had God chosen to answer he very well could have said, so that I can forgive my people. That's why I'm abandoning you, Jesus. Apart from the Father forsaking the Son, salvation is impossible. Think about how difficult it was for Jesus to bear. This was a new experience for him. He'd never experienced this before. Second, his Father abandoned him when he needed him most. Most. For all the martyrs throughout all the history of the church, God has always been right there with them, strengthening them. That's why martyrs often can have a a great profession of faith is because God is right there strengthening them in their hour of weakness. God has promised, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. The promise came to Joshua, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. When David faced his troubles, he rested confidently in the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Israel was told, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will hold you with my righteous right hand. And we're promised that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death, or life, or angels, or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things. And yet, for our sake, God the Father abandoned the Son. How that could be, we don't understand. I don't know. But it was. But we understand far more than those who were by Him. Still in the darkness, still keeping these lights dim. I know that. Maybe I'm putting some of you to sleep. That's okay. Um, It was dark. They heard Jesus say, Eloi, Eloi. Lama sabachthani. Eloi, by the way. The difference between Matthew, which says, Eli, Eli, that's Hebrew. Eloi, Eloi is Aramaic. Which He spoke, I'm not exactly sure but the meaning is clear. It is the same. But Eloi sounds like Elijah. And so they they heard Eloi, Eloi, and and, uh, they thought that maybe he was calling for Elijah. Jewish tradition about about that time believed that Elijah might come and rescue the righteous in their distress without letting them die. And so they're thinking, hey, maybe Elijah is really going to come. Putting all these things together, those who heard Jesus... Summoning for Elijah, a man sought to sustain the life of Jesus a little bit longer by giving him a drink of, of sour wine. The rest were just waiting to see whether Elijah would come, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus expired. In verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. His life was finished, he was done. We're going to look next week how he really died. And we're going to look next week how he really raised from the dead. But here he died. He breathed his last. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what loud cry he uttered. I mean, you almost get the sense he just let out a final scream of pain, Aah! and died. But we know from John that John records what he said. He said, It is finished. Tetelestai. It's all done. It's all accomplished. I've borne the wrath of God. For the sins of His people. Now, any parent loves to hear the words, It is finished. Right? Have you cleaned your room? It is finished. Ah. Have you cleaned the kitchen? Ah, it's finished. Ooh. Did you empty the dishwasher? It is finished. Did you vacuum? It is finished. Do you ever hear that, it is vac. Is it vacuumed? Is it finished? No, that's one of the biggest struggles we have in our house. That's for sure. Jesus said, it's finished. Never would He have to be sacrificed again. Never would He have to die again. But it gets better. Never would there be need for any sacrifice ever again. The work of redemption was finished, was accomplished. No need to add anything more. His one sacrifice upon the cross, satisfied, propitiated the wrath of God for all time for those who would believe upon Him. It's the point of Hebrews, especially chapter 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One time offering, and we are sanctified. Hebrews 10.14 By one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering, for all time, He sanctified us. Hebrews 10.18 Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there no longer remains any offering for sin. It was all done. It was all accomplished. Your sins... Nailed to the cross upon his shoulders. Well, it was all signified by what took place in the temple. That time in the darkness, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, that would have been devastating for the Jews. The other side of the veil was called the most holy place, it was the most holy place in the world. Nobody was permitted to go past that veil but the high priest only once a year on Yom Kippur. He would visit it. He'd offer sacrifice for himself. He'd come out. He would visit again. He'd offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. And it would sit in that room for a whole year until he would come in again. And the Jews were careful about these things. They knew that when Nadab and Abihu went into the Holy of holy place. And they offered what was not commanded by the Lord. They were consumed by fire. And Moses said, This is what the Lord spoke. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And the Jews kept that place holy so that people might only come in, the high priest, once a year to offer the sacrifice for themselves for the sins of the people. That's why that place is called the Holy of Holies. I mean, the temple is a holy place. Gentiles couldn't get in the temple. But the Holy of Holies, normal priest couldn't get in the temple. It was only the one high priest once a year. But with the temple curtain ripped, the Holy of Holies was wide open for all to see. And I wouldn't be surprised if the priest quickly sought Some other kind of veil to cover, up, rip, to cover up this veil that was ripped so as not to let men see in again. And by the way, this veil is huge. 60 feet tall. 30 feet wide. Okay? This room here, we're approaching maybe 30 feet wide, maybe 40, 40 feet wide, something like that. You know, how tall this is? It's 25 feet tall, 30 feet tall, maybe if so I remember right. Twice. Think about how big that bale is. And, and uh, for it to be ripped, if people would rip it, how would they rip it? From bottom to top, they put one guy on this side, one guy on this side. Well, probably about 10, 15 guys on this side, 10, 15 guys on this way. Start it with little cut, and then. To pull it, but this was ripped from top to bottom saying that it was God's doing. No accident. It was not the act of men. And what God has torn down, let no man put up. Because God has torn down the, the separation between us and God. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the path to God. And God God signified that by opening up the veil so we have access into the Holy of Holies. We no longer need a high priest. An altar of sacrifice. We no longer need Yom Kippur. The day of atonement has arrived. The Son of God has been sacrificed. We no longer need a Passover lamb because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And this is why, getting back to the beginning of my message, I would argue that the crucifixion is right at the fulcrum of history. Yes, the life of Christ is important, but of any most important thing, is to, at the crucifixion, because it was at the crucifixion, the moment he died, that the veil was ripped. His work accomplished. Access now to God through Jesus Christ. The yearly sacrifices were all pointing to this event. The law, Hebrews 10. The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very former things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year which they continually offer make perfect those who draw near. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. In fact, why don't we lift the lights on right now because now's the good news, right? you remember the bad news of Jesus dying? Oh, But now there's a light. There's the good news, right? That, that we have access to God That we can have confidence to enter the holy place through the blood of Jesus. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, and yet Jesus, by one offering, perfected all time those who draw near. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus was abandoned that we might have access. And all that happened was not lost on the centurion... Think about this. This man had seen many people die. It was his job to watch, to kill criminals. But never had he seen a man die like that. And that's my last point. Jesus was crucified. He was mocked. He was abandoned. And here it is. He was the Son of God. Verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, "Truly, this man was the Son of God. In many ways this is the point of the gospel of Mark. Jesus is the son of God. It's how it begins. Mark chapter 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And here it is right towards the end, truly this man was the son of God. And and my obvious question to you is, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? Those who walked by didn't believe it. The religious leaders didn't believe it. I mean, of anyone we would have expected to believe it, it would have been them. They searched the scriptures, they knew the scriptures very well, but, but they didn't believe. In the Rock Valley Bible Church, you may know the scriptures really well, but do you believe that this is the Son of God? How strange it is, it's not the priest who says, yes, this is the Son of God. He was a pagan, Gentile, army man. Truly, this man was the Son of God. should give hope to us. It's not the religious righteous who believe. This was, by all accounts and purposes, maybe an unrighteous man. But yet he saw how he took the abuse from being mocked. He saw how his Father abandoned him. He saw how he breathed his last and expressed that. And I just say this, truly this man is the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we have an, a chance today for the sixth and last week in a row to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're, we're going to celebrate exactly this event. When Jesus took the bread and the cup, He said, this is my body, this is my cup, such like blood. He says, I'm going to be crushed. I'm going to be consumed. And know that, that that's the case. And you do this remembrance of me. I, I've been thinking recently about how the Jewish religion is so filled with symbolism and, and symbols and pictures. You, you'll see that. If you come to the Seder meal, you will see that. And just this is the one thing that Jesus has given the church. He's given the Lord's Supper and baptism. The baptism is the initiation into the church, if you will. Right? When you're immersed, you're immersed in the water, it's a sign of cleansing. And so likewise here, we eat and drink. It's a testimony to the fact that we believe that this man is the Son of God. So if your soul is right before Him and you're trusting in Him, I invite you to celebrate with us. Let's pray. A Puritan prayed long ago, "O oh Lord, the words I will pray this morning. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I may obtain heaven's best, stripped that I may be clothed, wounded that I may be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, Entered darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior that wept all tears might be wiped from my eyes. My Savior groaned that I might have endless song. My Savior endured all pain that I might have unfading health. My Savior bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem. My Savior bowed His head that I might uplift mine. My Savior experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. My Savior closed my eyes in death that I may gaze on His unclouded brightness. My Savior expired that I might forever live. Father, I would pray that we would see those realities of Christ in our lives, that we would understand them and and embrace them That Christ truly would be, O Lord, our all in all. I pray that you'd commune with us this time. We think and remember your death as you told us to do. Father, may this be a time of of life giving joy to us. With lights on. Happy, joyful. out of all the, the sorrows that you took for us. We love you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.